Isaiah chapter 26, starting at verse 12. Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you also have wrought all our works in us. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have dominion over us, but by you only will we make mention of your name. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore have you visited and destroyed them and made all their memories to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited you. They poured out a prayer when you chasten, when your chastening was upon them. Like as to a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pang, so have you been so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, have as it were, brought forth wind, and have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Thy dead men shall live together with your dead body, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust, for the dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So we're going to look at this, and starting at verse 12. Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have wrought in us, uh, in wrought all our works in us. And we look at this, and it says, God has ordained or established uh, or set in place peace for us. Now, and this is something that's really interesting, that it's God who's done this for us. He has established for us and ordained it ahead of time, peace. And we've talked about the word peace in, in uh, Hebrew. It's the word shalom. And the Hebrews, even to this day, will use that as a greeting. And it is translated peace. But it is so much more than what we think of as peace because it is a blessing upon people. Let God bless you. Have peace. Or as we were talking even before we did this, this started the study, to just be so secure in God that no matter what happens, we have faith that He is in charge. We understand that He is He's the one that's in control. We keep our eyes on Him. We keep focused on Him, and He just gives us that comfort to go through problems. And you know, sometimes I look at the world and and I know that I have my peace in God. And I look at how the world falls apart, sometimes at the smallest things. And sometimes they're pretty big things that tear them apart. But I've seen people fall apart when there's nothing out there because they just focus on their problem rather than on God. And God has ordained peace for us. He established, he has set in place peace if we will just rest. And our life is to be, he wants us to just rest in faith or turn that around, have faith rest. God, I am just so much faith with you that I can just rest in what you have ordained for me. And it's so amazing because then you tell people, you know, you know I, I, I've told this to various relatives. I'm going, you know, I'm just amazed at how easy life is. And many times they'll laugh because they know some of the things I've gone through that I don't recognize as problems. To me, I really haven't ever gone through anything. 
And in reality, I really haven't gone through anything, especially when I hear people who have lost kids and lost fam you know, wives or family members and, and you know, had big financial setbacks and all of these things. Uh, you know, I lost a job or two occasionally. I've, you know, I've had some setbacks. But you know, when I, my focus has been on God, so I can honestly really feel like nothing's really happened. Uh, when my sister died, I told the pastor of the church that was doing, a, doing the ceremony, he goes, I just can't feel sad that she went to heaven. You know, I just can't. Uh, most of my family was all devastated and broken up. And, and yes, yeah, I kind of miss my sister at various times, but she went to heaven. I get to see her again. And she got her life back together in her last, last four or five years of her life because she had walked away from God. And yet came back to God after, you know, after a period of time and was fellowshipping with God and back in relationship with God. So I know that she's in heaven and it wasn't a real big tragedy. But you know, do we have faith that what's happening to us is ordained by God? And this takes us back to, you know, all the different things we can say, you know, all things work together for good, all things are, you know, all things, you know, uh, there is no temptation overtaken us, but such is common to man. And Satan likes to lie to us when we're, when we're tempted. You know, what an awful person you are. Nobody has ever thought the way you did. Nobody's ever been tempted like you. And if you were really a Christian, you, you wouldn't be tempted this way. And we need to be careful that we don't buy into those kind of lies. Everybody's been tempted. If you go to scripture enough, you'll find somebody tempted that way. If you read any biography of people, you'll read people. And if you get to know different people, you'll know that. Because what's usually happening is you buy into that lie, you fall, into, you fall away from God for a while, you get yourself back into, you know, and you start telling your testimony, and then you find out all these people will tell you, I'm so glad you, you, know, you told me that because I thought I was the only person. And I've heard that so many times from people. You know, they'll hear a testimony and go, wow, I thought I was the only one that went through that. You don't know your word of God very well. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, we need to be able to put these things in our heart so that when we go through hard times, we say, okay, God, this temptation is normal. Satan, I don't buy into your lie that it's not normal, that I'm the only one. God, you have a plan. God, you've ordained it. And there's so many verses we could use for those, for those things, but a lot of it is who are we going to trust? Are we trusting in God? And as I've said, each test that we go through will keep getting harder so that it is a test. You know, and each time we go through it, and I've been going through a lot of stuff lately myself, you know, there's just little things that happen. And it's like, okay, God, <laughs> you know, my whole life's been turned upside down, but I'm just going to rest in you and, and follow you and walk with him. And this is what it says. It's ordained. And then I love the second half of this. For you have wrought all our works in us. If our works have any value whatsoever, they're done by God. He has accomplished them. He has worked them. Because in us, nothing good can happen from us and from our flesh. So if we're doing something that we have generated, it's worthless to God. Isaiah, Isaiah tells us that all our righteousness is filthy rags. So if I try to make something happen, even if it's quote unquote good by human standards, God says it's worthless. He says all our righteousness, the best things we can do, God says, eh, just a bunch of rags. And in that verse, it literally means filthy, 
bloody, pus-filled rags. Okay, it's medical waste rags. All right, if you want to picture some of the worst things you could possibly picture, I worked in a hospital in the surgical ward as the cleanup person. I saw all these things. And most of the nurses and, and techs have put most of the worst stuff away. But I would still have things laying around sometimes that were just full of blood and sometimes poisonous pus and everything. Yeah. And that's what that word means. Our good is that. You know, and so it says, you have worked in us all our works. Anything that's worth anything value, God has worked in us. And this is why he says, I want to crucify your flesh. I want you in me so that he can change us to be more like him and produce his works that he has done because he's made us like him. And he's done the work. And this is what that verse says. He's done the work. And, you know, it's an amazing thing when we really start understanding, number one, who we are in Christ. And that's very important for us to understand because when Satan attacks us, we need to know who we are in Christ. I'm a child of God. I am, I am righteous. You know, I have the righteousness of Christ in me. Why can God say that? Because, number one, when we get saved, he says we're perfect. Now, we know we're not perfect. And God's going to spend our entire life making us perfect. But God declares us perfect, and he treats us as perfect. Why? Because he's outside of time, and he treats us as what we will be because he already knows what we will be which is perfect, and he treats us as if we are perfect because he's already with us in our perfect state. And we look at ourselves saying, well, God, I'm imperfect. How can you even love me? How can you care for me? And God says, that's not how I see you. I declared you perfect, and I see you as perfect because I'm not looking at you as you are today. I'm looking at you as you are in your glorified state. And God is totally skipping over the sanctification part that we have to go through. Now, the Holy Spirit's with us and sanctifying us and everything, but the Father just says, you're perfect, I'm treating you that way. And when Satan goes to attack, attack us and saying, well, you know, how can you love that person? Then we have that picture in Zechariah where Satan comes before God and the high priest, and he's getting ready to point to the high priest, and God kind of says, wait a moment, angels, clean this person up. And then basically turns to Satan and says, okay, now what, what was your complaint about him? And, you know, his mouth, his, he has nothing to say because now the person standing in, it says he stood there at first in filthy clothing, and God turned around, cleaned him up, put new clothes on him, and then basically said to Satan, okay, you know, and I'm simplifying, it's more poetic in there, but, you know, oh, what was your problem with this man? <laughs> you know, what was your problem with the, the high priest? And there's no accusation because now there's no, there's nothing for him to point to. And, you know, God works these things out for us, and he sees us totally different. Now, just think about this. What if we, as Christians, started, number one, seeing ourselves the way God sees us, but even more important, we treat other Christians the way God sees them? How would that change the way we react to people? You know, when they're, when they're being mean and nasty, okay, that's not God's part of it. He's covered it in the blood. I'm going to love them still. I'm going to treat them, you know, as what God says they are, his children. Even though they're not good at this point, I'm still going to treat them as a person whose sin, who sin is covered. And I'm going to love them, and I'm not going to speak evil of them. I'm going to speak edific edification over them. 
what would it be like if the church really started talking to one another that way? What love that would be, you know, to, to ignore the negatives. Because what ends up happening is if you're concentrating on all the negatives that somebody does or you have the problems you have with somebody, it colors the way you treat them from that point on and gets a response back from them that's a negative response. But if we can start saying, wow, you know, I, that person's really bad, but you know, God says they're his child and they're, they're good. And we say, you know, I'm so glad that God loves you. Maybe that's all you can say about them. You know, maybe that's all you can say about it. But you know, you're looking at them and saying, God loves you and he's, he's got a great plan for you. That's what exactly what this verse says. God's got a plan for them. And if we can just be able to start seeing each other that way and speak that way about one another. And you know, how do you feel when somebody speaks well of you? You want to do even more to get more praise. It's just a natural aspect. If somebody's giving you praise, you want to do more to get more praise. And what would happen if that happened in the church all the time? We edify one another. We see somebody who's having a hard time and we just say, you know, and like I say, it may be just as simple as, I'm so glad that God loves you and that he's forgiven, you know, that you live before him forgiven. You know, that's still edification. You know, and reminding them who they are instead of who they think they are. And this is the problem we would, before we even started this. We were talking about how we see things as God says they are. We trust that all things work together for good. We trust that there's, that there's nothing that is uncommon to, you know, in, in our temptation. And the more we trust God, the more our life works in faith. But, you know, we can encourage one another. You know, God loves you and he's forgiven you and I'm going to treat you in that way and be able to just edify. And if you can add more than that, honestly, add to it. Don't make things up to, <laughs> you know, uh, because I've had that experience where somebody, you know, said something, you know, well, I'm so glad you, you know, for all the things you do in the church, and I turn around because the person didn't even know me really, and I'm going, what, what, what am I doing in the church? Just to see if they even knew. Because you know, that particular church was huge. And this particular person, I'm sure, did not know me. I mean, they knew my name, and they knew that I was around, but I don't think they knew what I did in the church. Because at that church, I wasn't very high up. I was just you know, really low-level worker in the church. And they didn't. Yeah, they, they didn't have an answer, and that didn't make me feel good. Okay? You can say the right things if, if you don't, and if there's no real truth behind it, it's not going to matter. You know, so at the very least, I'm so glad God loves you. you know, and, and it's perfected you, because that's something that's very important. You know, because that's something that's true. We can definitely tell every Christian, I'm glad that loves you, God has loved you, and and you're, has clothed you in, in his righteousness, helping them know who they are. Because we treat each other sometimes totally wrong and tear each other down and sometimes get angry at some people. That, you know, and from the flesh, there's good reason sometimes. But we don't live according to the flesh. We're to live in a spirit-filled relationship with, with one another and try to see each other after God's way of seeing and it starts with seeing ourselves that way. Because if we don't see ourselves that way, we're definitely not going to see others in Christ. And, 
And uh, when Satan attacks us, we just, you know, you know Satan, Satan is funny because he gives us all these things. You know, the great thing, you know, when Satan comes and tells you what, how bad and awful you are, what, what I've heard somebody do, and I agree with it, tell Satan, you're absolutely right, I'm terrible, but I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ because I am covered by this sin, and I'm going to heaven, and you're not. <laughs> okay. We can agree with him. You know, you're right. Who, those are the facts, Satan. The facts are that I'm a miserable, terrible person, but the truth is I'm in Christ, and I'm perfect, perfect in God's sight. And we need to be able to understand God's truth does not always meet up to the facts that we see. You know, because we see the facts that we're terrible. You know, that we've made all kinds of mistakes and we're awful and miserable. And yes, we can agree with Satan that, you know what? Yes, I'm going to agree with you. The facts are that. But the truth is... Well, the truth is I am in Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness and my sins are forgiven and God no longer sees my, my sin. You know, and we need to really start understanding that so that when we get bombarded, if you have that attitude, you will never backslide and fall away from church. Because the thing that is so interesting over the years that I've watched, the very time people need to draw to church because they're having trouble with sin is when they pull away from church because they allow themselves to buy into Satan's lies that you're the only one and nobody's going to love you because of how awful you, you sinned or whatever it might be and I'm, you know, and I'm so ashamed and I'm so, you know, so angry or whatever at myself or, and we pull away from the church. And the one thing I want to challenge everybody is whenever you think it's time to pull away from church, don't. <laughs> Draw closer. And that doesn't mean you tell everybody in the church about who you are, but find somebody in the church that you can actually say, I need your prayers, I need, you know, I need, need help. Find somebody who's going to be an encourager. Because there are people in every church that are going to encourage you. And if you're not careful, there are people in the church that are going to make you feel miserable and, and awful. You know, uh, it's just what's out there. Jesus said in the parable of the weed and the tares that there are people who aren't Christians in the church. All right? So we want to be careful not to talk to them to begin with. But even within that, there are Christians who just haven't grown to the place where they are going to see people correctly. So we want to make sure we, we're talking to and being ministered to by people who understand God. And we see this over and over. And it's been said that only about 50% of the people in the church are truly Christians. And I think that is way too high. I think it's much closer to probably 10% of the, the average church, the average church, is, about, is truly saved. Uh, in a good Bible preaching church with the gospel message, it might get up as high as 20 or 25%. But, you know, it, it's easy to ignore God. Uh, Greg Glory says the easiest place to get a hard heart toward God is in church. And it really is, because if you hear it often enough and quit paying attention to it, you can get very hard toward God. And so that's not a place you want to be if you're not, <laughs> if you're not inclined to listen to God. But at least you're hearing God's word, and God's word does not return void. Eventually, it clicks in, and you can remember it. But we look at this. God is the one that does the works in us. If they're of any value, he does them. Verse 13 is, O Lord our God, 
other gods besides you have dominion over us, but by you only will we make mention of your name. Now, what is this basically meaning? When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave up dominion of this world to Satan. Now, Jesus conquered Satan at the cross, but he is still, at this point in time, having dominion over the world because Jesus hasn't taken the deed yet. In Genesis, excuse me, Genesis, Revelation talks about the seven seals that are being broken, which is the picture of a title deed in, in the Greek times that had seven seals on it that had to be broken in succession. And that is when he physically takes the deed of this world back and says, no, you no longer have it. He has already conquered, he's paid the payment, but he hasn't taken the deed back. But again, we go back to God is outside of time as far as he's concerned, he's already taken the, the title deed. And you know, this is something that's hard for us as human beings because we work in time in a linear f format. You know, we're, we're here and we're going, okay, God, why haven't you taken the title? And he goes, well, it's not a problem to me, I've already taken it because he's outside of time you know, so his perception of time is totally different. And we've talked about this. Because God's outside of time, he's with us right now here. He's with Adam and Eve right now. He's even before creation right now. He's in the millennial kingdom right now. And he's already in the new heaven and the new earth right now. <laughs> Yes. That's why these pictures in the scriptures are pretty deep. So it's, the title deeds were sealed. And I'm not sure if it goes all the way back to Hebrew. Definitely during the Greek and Roman times, it was definitely that way. So it was something they understood in a much different light than we understand it. Uh, they, would just, they would seal it. And it was seven times that it was sealed. And each place had to be broken before the titles could be understood. Uh, or, or accepted. <laughs> uh, now we just get a piece of paper, or, or when you buy, a, you know, you buy a piece of property, you get a whole packet of about 20 or 30 pieces of paper in it uh, for your title. Uh, but you know, Satan has the dominion over this world, and this is what he's saying. Other people have dominion over us, but by, by you only will we mention your name. He goes, okay, God. We, we have dominion. We're, we're being dominion over other places. And if we don't even put Satan in there, we still have the flesh that has dominion over us until we have it crucified by Christ so that it's dead and he reigns in us. And we have this dominion that is, is a problem for us. And we have to, again, go back to faith rest. God, crucify my flesh. If we're totally trusting in God and we're focused on him, we don't have a problem with the flesh because he's, he's, putting the, he's putting it to death and we're focused on him. The only problem is we can't stay focused on him all the time for whatever reason. You know, uh, because as he turns up the heat to work the dross out of us, we keep failing the first couple times. It's very rare for us to always pass our test and I don't think anybody ever always passes their test. I know I don't. <laughs> 
Uh, now, many of my tests haven't been blown the way they were when I was younger. Okay, when I was younger in Christ and immature, that sometimes I'd be knocked down for months to a year, you know, or two years, or even six years that I had where I challenged God. That was the longest one I remember. Uh, but, you know, as we mature in Christ, sometimes we just barely get knocked down and go, oh, man, I really messed up. God, help me. And we pop right back. And we, and we pass the test. And it says, I want to mention you, God. I want to put my faith in you. And then verse 14, they are dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore have you visited and destroyed them and made them all, a me- all their memory to perish. And this is talking about the things that have dominion over us. And he's, you know, we, we in the New Testament say, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's what this verse is saying. Those that have dominion over us, they're dead. You know, they are dead. They have been put to death, and they shall not be revived. Same verse, same context. All right? Because the previous word is those things that have dominion over us. Satan, the flesh, God puts them to death. You know, it is amazing when we look at these things and, and say, Wow, this is something wonderful. I, I memorized many years ago an Old Testament version of verses for the Romans wrote, where, you know, where it talks about sin and death and, you know, uh, and the, all, all parts of it. You know, the only thing really missing was, it, was Jesus. So you had to have one New Testament verse in there that is Jesus, who actually is the one who paid for it. But we can show them that Everybody has sinned, and they deserve punishment, and it takes a sacrifice, and then we have to go that Jesus is that sacrifice, which that's the hard one for those who believe in the Old Testament to, to come to. But, you know, it says right here, all these things are dead, and God is going to make all memories of them perish. Now, that can happen somewhat in this life. Well, how do we get rid of memories? And this is something that's very important because I hear this all the time. Well, I just can't stop remembering this. Well, the most, the first step in stopping to remember something is quit thinking about it. Okay, quit thinking about it. Because I know people who remember things from decades ago. But you'll ask them, well, what did you eat for dinner two weeks ago? I have no idea. Why? They didn't think about it. You know, we stop rehearsing the item in our mind. We stop talking about it to other people. You know, and this is something that amazes me. I've got, I know people who are angry with somebody they don't even know because they've listened to somebody put them down so much that they're angry with a person they don't even know. Right or wrong is irrelevant. But now they're going to meet that person someday, maybe, and they already have a bad attitude about that person. And I've heard people go, wow, I met that person, and man, they don't sound at all like the, per- the way the other person talked about them. I go, yeah, well, maybe you shouldn't have listened to that other person tearing them down in the first place. And this is why it becomes important for us. When we hear somebody putting other, somebody else down or gossiping, or you know, deriding somebody, we need to stop them and say, no, 
And I've told people, I go, if you want to talk bad about a person, we're only going to do it in front of them. Okay, if they're standing in front of me, you can say whatever you want about them, but don't tell me anything negative about that person if they're not here to defend themselves. And I can tell you in all the years that I've done that, decades that I've done that, nobody has ever taken me up on the offer to go talk to them about them in front of them, which means that either they're lying or you know, they're just saying things that are you know, exaggerated. Uh, and I don't want to hear it because I don't need my mind poisoned. When I first started here, I had people tell, well, you need to know about this person. You need to know about this person. No, I don't need to know about anybody. If God wants me to know about them, he will reveal it. And we need to take that attitude toward things. And every once in a while, I'll catch myself. I'm going in the middle of a conversation, and it is so easy in the middle of a conversation to find yourself listening to something that you're not supposed to listen to. And as soon as you realize that that's happening, you need to say, stop. We're not going here. We're not going to dwell on those aspects and just say, we want to edify. Because if we start edifying people, building people up, especially in, to their face, but more importantly, even behind their back. It's very important for us to talk edification even behind somebody's back and build them up. So that when people meet them, they're going, hey, I've heard about you. And even then they might go, oh, you don't live up to what I heard, but <laughs> at least that's a better, better place to be than starting out with the wrong attitude. Uh, and it says, all these things, have, God's going to cause their memory to perish. You know, and we want to keep that, keep that in mind. In verse 15, for you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified and have removed far it far from all the ends of the earth. God glorifies and he removes the dominion far from the earth. You know, how far does God remove our sins when he, when he covers them? In Psalms, as far as the east is from the west. Okay, which is an infinite distance. Because east and west never meet. All right? You can end up back where you started, but you've never changed direction. I'm sure glad God didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because that has an, that has an end. And God says, I've removed your sin. He has increased the good. You know, and you know, when we think about this, what does God think about us? Nothing but good. Why? Because he sees us clothed in Jesus Christ, he sees us as perfect. Now, and that's just mind-boggling when you think about it, that God sees us as perfect. And you know what? He has to see us as perfect because of his holy, righteous nature. He has to see us as perfect or he could not deal with us because if we weren't perfect, we couldn't stand before him and he could not look upon us and Jesus' death on the cross allows him to see us as perfect. Now, what about the Old Testament saints before Jesus died? God knew that Jesus was going to die and saw them perfect because of the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> because when before God even created man or created the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create man. Man is going to sin. And Jesus, will you die to redeem him? And he said yes. As soon as he said yes, 
God the Father saw him as the crucified lamb for the people of the world. So all the way from the very beginning, they were truly covered in God's sight by the blood of Jesus Christ, even though he hadn't died yet for us. But in God's mind, he had already died. He died the moment he said he would do it because he's, his saying, yes, I would, meant that he would. And because God is also outside of time, he already knew that he had. So he could then treat them, even though he hadn't died in our, in our time frame, he could treat them as if he had died because he had died in his time frame. You know, and it's a mind-boggling thing to see that God sees things totally different than we do. And he treats us totally different than we would expect to be treated because he already knows that we're going to be glorified and he treats us after that manner. And, you know, it says he's removed it. He's removed it. You know, as far as, you know, from all the ends of the earth, he removes it. God covers our sins and they are gone from his mind. You know, and people will go, well, how can God who knows everything not know your sins? And the answer to that is by divine fiat. He made a command. He just said, I will not remember your sins anymore. And because he said that he's not going to remember their sins, he puts them and hides them away and says, I've got a spot in, in the universe or someplace out there where I'm going to put your sins and I'm not going to remember them. They're underneath the blood. And once he puts them under the blood, he never remembers them. Now, when we think about that truth that God does not know our sins and does not remember our sins, and then we hear people that will say, well, I just can't forgive myself. You know, and they ask God to forgive them over and over and over again. Can you imagine God sitting in heaven? What are you talking about? I forgave you the first time you asked, you know, that you, and I'm sure he goes, okay, yeah, they just can't, you know, they're just not releasing this. But you can almost picture God being totally confused. What the heck are they talking about? You know, I don't remember this, this sin that they're talking about. We need to be able to say, God, forgive me and accept that I'm forgiven. You know, and I think it's really sad when I hear people say, well, I just can't forgive myself, or even worse yet, I can't forgive somebody else. Okay, the God of the universe can forgive them and, or can forgive you and you can't? What is that really turning into? Idolatry. God, I know you've forgiven them, but I just can't forgive. That's a very, very bad place to be in. And it really is idolatry. God, I am God. God, you can do it, but hey, I can't. You know, when we think about the level of idolatry that we face sometimes, it is very interesting. You know, sometimes pastors can get in this. Well, God, you know, you and I built this ministry, but now it won't run without me. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've gotten a little bit too big for my britches if I get to that place. All right, because God doesn't need me or whatever pastor it might be or doesn't need you if, it's, if you have a ministry. We always have to remember it's God who built it. He, yes, he used me or used you, but he's the one that did the work. And we need to be very careful not to get too proud and arrogant within this. And, uh, you know, and then verse 16, Lord, in trouble have they visited you. They poured out prayer when, you cha when your chastening was upon them. Okay? And then we're going to go read 17. Like a woman with a child that draws near, 
to her time of delivery, is in pain and cries out in her pangs, so have we been in your sight, O God, or O Lord. When we do fall into trials that we forget that he's got a plan for and we, and we lose sight on him, we cry out to him. We cry out to him. And it might be just like that. You know, you know, I remember especially my first child that was born and I was in the labor room with Lynn and she was holding my hand and on each labor pain, she just about crushed my hand, which I never knew my wife was that strong and blaming me for all of it. <laughs> but she doesn't remember any of that stuff. You know. But my hand was almost broken. We cry out to God that way. You know, God, I am just so sad, so hard. You know, Peter, when he went out in the storm walking on the water, he walked on the water just fine until he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the waves and said, what am I doing out here? I can't walk on water. And as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he started sinking, but he did the right thing. He called to Jesus, help me. And Jesus lifted him up. That's exactly what this verse is saying. When I fall into those troubles, I'm going to cry out to God, and he's going to answer. And this is important for us to understand. God will always answer the sinner's cry. Whether it's our first sin that we accept him as our savior or when we're in the midst of our sin and we cry out God I don't even know how I got here but rescue me he will come out and rescue us and this is why I say it's important for us not to leave God because that's unfortunately what most people will do they'll get going so far down the road they're going man I just can't forgive myself I don't know how God can forgive me and I kind of understand it on one side you feel guilty being around God's people because you know you're not there, so you pull yourself away. And it usually starts with stopping reading the Bible and praying. You know, that's usually the first place where it stops, and then it works out to not even going to church. Don't ever forget to stay focused on God. Keep reading the Word. Keep, keep praying. Keep, keep going to church. Because Satan wants to isolate us. And if he can isolate us, he will get us cold. And the greatest example of this is if you take a hot burning ember of, out of the midst, midst of a fire when it's red hot and set it on the side of the fire, it goes out very quickly. A lot quicker than the rest of the fire does because it is isolated. And Satan knows that if he can isolate us, he can put the fire out, at least temporarily. And this is what he's going to try to do. We need to cry out to God. And just as that, you know, God, I am in pain. I am, everything is going wrong. <laughs> Help me. And we've talked earlier, and when we're focused on God, we go through storms without noticing that we're going through the storms. And, you know, we're, we're doing things, we're walking by faith, but when we get isolated from him, we're in pain, especially at first. And then run, eventually we'll realize that we're in, we're in that pain. And then verse 18, was, he goes, we have been with child, we have been in pain. <laughs> Uh, and we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So he says, we had been with child. You know, we've made these mistakes. Right? We had been away from you, God, and we have brought forth wind. 
wind is emptiness, void. All right. When it talks about wind, wind is usually not a good thing. Wind knocks things down. It, it's, it's devastating. It, it's caused by storms. And we have not wrought any deliverance or salvation in the earth. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Okay. Uh, most of what we do doesn't really affect the world. You know, a lot of times we think we're so important. You know, and this is something that I learned in the business world. No matter how important somebody thinks they are, if they die or are fired or retired or quit, <laughs> the business usually goes on. Now, very rarely, I mean, if it's a lawyer or an architect, you know, it's kind of a one-man show, the business will fall, you know, come to an end. But if it's any kind of large business, one person quitting is not going to make a devastating long-term impact. It might have a short-term impact. You know, this person's doing four or five jobs, and all of a sudden you have to replace them. It may have a short-term short impact. This is something that happens in churches sometimes. People get building up a ministry within a church, and they go, well, you know, can't get by without me. And God says, okay, let me just show you. I have learned over the years that when somebody that you think is a very important person leaves, what usually happens is God lifts up three or four people to take their place. So when I get kind of excited when somebody that's somewhat, you know, that we think is important leaves, I'm going, okay, God, who, who are you going to rise up in their place? Uh, and I shared with you, when I came to this church, we had to find five people to do all the different jobs that I did. Not that I am say how special I was, but, you know, I was an organizer and all these things, and it, we just put a lot of people in place, and a lot more people started serving. And this is usually what happens. God takes somebody that we think is important out and puts more people in their place. And sometimes it means that a direction totally changes. And that can be hard, too. You know, we were going this way, and all of a sudden somebody else knew, and they go this way. Is what they're doing wrong? Nope, not necessarily. God just has a new plan and a new direction and a freshness that happens. Oh, well, yeah. Because not everybody will, we will have an effect on a small part of the world, but nobody's got enough other than Jesus <laughs> has an effect on the whole world. You may have an influence over a greater number of people. Some people just have an influence over one or two people. Because okay? everybody has influence over somebody. And then, you know, you can get to a place where you have influence over a larger number of people. Or you can be somebody like a Billy Graham who has a great influence, but even he didn't have influence over yeah. all the world. Everybody is important because he created them. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have an influence that's going to affect what's going. Because Jesus would have died for each individual in this world. Okay, If you were the only individual that needed him, he would have died for you. All right? That's how important we are to God. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have great influence and affect the world and make the rest of the world fall or not fall. But you could have influence over those that you have influence over. If a father goes the wrong direction in a family, he can take the whole family down as well. If a pastor turns away from God and does wrong things, he can take and really devastate a church. 
Now, we've said this, that does not give the people under that person an excuse, well, my leader failed, so I failed. No, God says, you failed because you chose to fail. Don't put your leader in that position. But that, is, that person does have an influence, and they may be the cause of that person going into sin, uh, which is why leaders are held to a higher accountability. But, you know, they're worthy of double honor, but they're also worthy of double punishment. All right, God says, give them honor, give them honor, lift them up, you know, uh, you know, pay them well, whatever, whatever terms you want. But when they turn away from God and lead those people wrong, they're doubly uh, held accountable because they're accountable for what they did wrong, and all the people they led astray. It is a awesome responsibility to be a teacher and a leader before God. And uh, because you have that responsibility for those that are following you. And when, they, when a leader falls, it's a really bad place for them because they now have great uh, judgment coming their way because of the lives they hurt. Worse than just the people who follow who fall away. Because they just, you know, I'm, I just fell away. I, I'm all by myself. And so we look at this and say, God, you know, how much influence do I have? Some people have greater influence than others. Yes, everybody's important. God would have died for them. You know, if each individual, no matter who was on this world, God would have died for them if they were the only one that needed to come to him. But some have influence as well. But not, nobody has influence over the whole world. <laughs> like there's some people that are more important? I would, wouldn't say more important in God's place. They have more influence for whatever reasons that they have more influence. Rewards. Not necessarily. God only rewards us according to what we do. Because look at the widow who gave two, two half a pennies, you know, and God, Jesus said, she has given more than all these people who dumped in a whole bunch of money because she gave all that she had. When we stand before God, he's not going to look at, well, did you do a hundred things or one thing? If all you had, to, had was the skill to do one thing and you used it completely, you're going to get rewards. But then, like, I'm thinking, how about the guy on the cross? He did ask for forgiveness, but then he would, the lady with the one um, token would get more rewards than him. The thief on the cross had no chance of getting any reward other than going to heaven. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, people who get saved at the last moment of their life, yeah. They made it into heaven. All right? They're not going to get rewards because they didn't live to get rewards. Yeah. But let's take those exceptions out. Yeah. The person with one talent who uses it is going to be rewarded for 100% usage of their talent. Now, let's say you had 10 talents, you know, and you used three of them. You know, by human standards, okay, I get three times the reward of the person with one because I used three talents. But God's going to look at you and say... Uh, you only used 30% of your talents, you only get 30% of the reward. Okay? Uh, hopefully, we don't know. We don't know. From our point of view, it looks like he did. Okay? And this is why we have to be careful because we could look at somebody and say, wow, look how good they are for God. And they may only be using two or three of their talents. They're using them well. But God looks at him and says, well, I wish you would use the rest of your talents. 
You, know, you didn't use your whole talent. Says, which is why we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven at how people are rewarded. Because the rewards are going to be based upon how faithful you were to what you had to give. Which is why more talented people are, have more expected of them. Even in the business world. You know, you've got people you really expect great things for because they're very talented. You've got these other people, well, you, you, you can do the job. <laughs> you, know, you can do the, but this person, they should be excelling. Much is, a, much is a expected. Well, it was like that one with the son with all the money and the one that buried it in. Right, that's what he's talking about. That one there, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what it is. If we use our talents completely, we're going to get the rewards for using our talents completely. If all you have is one talent, use it completely. Yeah. And I've said this before. If your talent is just to pray, pray. Now, that doesn't mean don't try other things. So you might find you have other talents that you don't know of. So try other things. I mean, uh, many of the pastors I've heard said, you know, how do you find your gifts? Go try things. Give them long enough to know that you've tried it. Okay, well, I'm going to try teaching. Well, I've done it two weeks and I didn't do well at it, so it's not my talent. Give it three, give it three months, give it six months. Do, give it long enough to actually learn how to do it before you say, it's not for me, okay? Uh, but, you know, we want to be able to say, what is that talent? What influence do I have? Who am I influencing? You know, none of us are going to have the whole world. No, but we all have people that are watching us, and I've said this over and over again. There are people watching us. If we let anybody know that we're a Christian out there, they're looking at us to say, how do you handle trial? How do you handle trouble? What happens when something like this happens to you? Do you live differently than I live? Do you live differently than the rest of the world lives? And again, we're not perfect, but we should be walking with God enough that people say there's something different about them, which takes us back to what we were saying at the very beginning. If I'm focused on God and, and I'm walking through those storms of life and people are looking at, them, looking at us and saying, wow, they're not, they're not falling apart like everybody I know. They're not falling apart like I would do that draws them to you and saying, eventually they might say, what is it that makes you so different? And gives you an opportunity to open up to them and share the word. And you know, very important for us to be able to understand. Verse 19 says that your dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing you that dwell in dust for the dew is as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. And this is talking about resurrection. We are dead. Now man has three parts to him, body, soul, and spirit. When we are born in sin under the curse, our spirit is dead. People walk around with a body and a soul and a dead spirit until they come to Christ. When they come to Christ, all of a sudden they get a spirit. And the idea is that God wants to crucify the flesh. Now that won't happen until we, you know, completely until we die and we get our glorified body. The soul is that in-between place. The soul is where our seat of emotions and the innermost appetites go. And the soul pretty much goes with whichever side is fed the most. All right? If we're feeding our spirit with the word of God, 
with being taught, the soul will start to tend toward godly ambition. If we're feeding our flesh, and it's so easy to fill our flesh because we have our eyes and ears and the things we watch and hear and, and do, we will tend to be fleshly. And this is why we're told in, in Romans 12 that we're to, re, to renew our minds, wash our minds with the water of the, of the word. The more we're in the word of God, the more we're feeding our flesh, our spirit, the less influence the flesh will have on us. And this is growth. It's maturity. And we've talked about this. You know, as we grow in Christ, as he starts renewing our minds, we will change. And he changes us line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You know, the one thing God doesn't do is come in and just demolish every way that, you know, everything that we think of. Because when we think about this, how much of what we do is just automatic? You know, we respond in ways we have taught ourselves to respond. If God came in and totally demolished all of our old thoughts at once, now he could miraculously give us spiritual thinking, but that's not the way it works. He slowly starts demolishing the old way of thinking and puts new ways of thinking in it. And, it, and we heard the testimony even this morning, you know, this, the, uh, this, the, before we started the study. How much does God do? You know, it's an amazing thing as he starts changing the way we think. And he resurrects us, <laughs> takes us out of the dust, and he puts in the water of the word in us, the spirit of God in us, and we are made totally different. And, you know, the earth shall cast out the dead. You know, the, you know God's spirit and the flesh cannot co-mingle. It will be one or the other. And the more of his spirit that's in us, the less of the flesh that we have to deal with. Now, the flesh still pops its head up, still keeps trying to come back. But the more of God we have in it, the easier it is to just say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. <laughs> you know, uh, God, I'm going to put my trust in you. I am not going to follow anything else. And then verse 20 Come, my people, enter into your chambers and shut the doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. God says, hide in me. You know, come, my people, enter you into your chambers and shut the doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a moment until the indignation is past. This theme of hiding ourselves is throughout the scripture. Noah was told to build an ark. He preached for 200, 120 years, excuse me, to the people. Nobody came into the ark, which represents salvation. One door, one way, Jesus Christ, into protection, and the rest of the people died in the flood. Psalms is full of hide in God. He is our fortress. He is our tower. He is our buckler. He's our shield. And you go over and over again, hide in God. This verse says, come and hide in the chamber. In the New Testament, Paul's favorite statement was, 
be in Christ. Be clothed in Christ. Be hidden in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus said. He is that way of protection, and we hide in him, and he protects us. Over and over, the scriptures has this idea of hide in God, and then he, when we're hidden in him, will take vengeance on the world. And two big ones that will be, you know, this is a practical for us every day within our world. He'll take vengeance. If people are coming against us, he will take vengeance on them. There's two big events that are worldwide. One was the, the flood of Noah, the deluge of, of Noah, when all the world was destroyed except eight people. The next big one will be the tribulation period where he takes his church out, sends it through seven years of tribulation, and then at the end of the millennial kingdom, there'll be one more trial, and God will take his people, destroy the entire universe, and recreate a new universe that is perfect. And he's going to destroy the current one because it is tainted. And we think about that. The sin of Adam and Eve didn't just taint mankind. It cursed the entire world. Thorns and thistles were grown. Storms, problems, all these things happened because of man's sin. You know, you know Sometimes Satan likes to make men think that he's really important. And yes, at one point in time, he was pretty important until we fell. And that's what's terrible. One sin, <laughs> one, one sin caused one sin the problems. And as Paul said, you know, the world is in travail waiting for that time, waiting for the recreation of it. Uh, all the violence that we face is because of sin. And we sometimes wonder, you know, you know, well, God, what is, what, what is the cost of one sin? You know, well, we can go back to Adam and Eve. You know, that was quite a cost. But how many times, even in our own lives, can we look at one sin that was a pivotal place in our life that totally changed us? Sometimes it can be really devastating. Somebody getting drunk and getting behind the wheel and killing somebody or killing lots of somebody's if they hit the right, the right car or vehicle, you know, and having to live with that one major sin. Uh, you know, we see this over and over. Abraham and Sarah committed a sin by going into Hagar and having a son who has been a thorn in the side of the flesh of Israel even to this day because many of the Arab world have their allegiance to him. You know, not all of them, but many of them. You know, one sin. One sin that caused all, this, all that problem for, for generations. We need to be very careful of this because God is going to punish. And we need to just be ready to just relax and let God be our defense. You know, the more we let God defend us, he will defend. He says, hide yourself, I will defend. <laughs> I will punish the iniquity. Oh, how hard it is to trust that statement. But again, it's one of those things, am I going to trust his statement? And God is such a gentleman that if we don't want to trust that statement, he'll let us defend ourselves. He'll let us make a mess out of everything. 
if that's what we want to do. Ideally, we shouldn't do it. But he says, okay, you want to do it? I'll just step back. You try to defend yourself. And if we choose to defend ourselves, we don't, he doesn't defend us. If we say, okay, God, I'm going to just, I'm going to hide in you and watch you defend, he'll come forward and defend. And the vengeance he defends with can be very, very harsh. But we have that peace. Again, we have peace. If we depend on him, we have peace. If we go, I don't have to defend myself because God's going to defend me, we have peace. And it's a wonderful place to be. Just being at peace with God because we trust him. But that trust is going to be challenged all the time. Daily. And it increases with the more we trust him. Because he's going to say, okay, you trusted me for that? Let me trust, are you going to trust me for this? Oh, great, you trusted me for this? Are you going to trust me for this? And it keeps getting to be a bigger challenge. Because he says, I want to know. What did he tell Abraham? Now he told Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain and offer Isaac as a sacrifice. His only child. His only child, the, the promised child. And they're way too old to have any more children. Okay, unless God does another miracle. They were too old to begin with. But Isaac was the promised child. And it's told in, in Hebrews that Abraham went up knowing that if he killed Isaac, God would resurrect him because Isaac was the child of promise. What faith? Now, in our day, we couldn't do this because God made it very clear that human sacrifice was not allowed. So if any of us got that call now to say, go kill your child, we'd have to go, uh-uh, that's not God talking. Even in Abraham's day, though, there wasn't supposed to be human sacrifice. So I don't understand why he even would be willing to do it other than his relationship with God. You know, where is our faith? You know, we look at Job. Job lost everything, and yet he said, naked came I into the world, and naked I'll go out if that's what God wants. You know, uh, such faith. He even called his wife who said, curse God and, and die. He goes, foolish woman, shall we accept good from God's hand and not evil? What faith Job had. And Job did pretty good until his friends started harassing him for a long period of time. And then he started to slide just a little bit. And most of us would too if we'd spent days or weeks being harassed by our so-called friends telling us how bad we must be because we're, we're, we're going through such bad things. Which takes us back to, are we edifying somebody or are we tearing them down? They were tearing them down. And if we tear somebody down enough, They'll, they'll believe it and they'll act in that, in that way. Which is why we need to find ways to build up and edify. Because they'll also believe that eventually. They'll also really believe that God loves them. Even if they don't start that way, they'll, they'll get to the place, well, you know what? You're really true. God loves me. You know, if you get told enough, you'll believe it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, that you will provide. Lord, that you have ordained everything that comes our way. And that, Lord, you have a plan for us. That you want to crucify our flesh and live through us. And we just thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.